Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Bedratty. Bedratty makes some of the finest golf clothing on the market, and they have a great special running right now. If you spend $100 in their, on their website, bedratty.com, you'll get a free bonus mystery polo from the Dratty Vault. So this is a neat little promotion. You don't know what you're going to get. I think we're all stuck in our own styles and preferences, but you might get sent something that you wouldn't normally buy, and you put it on, and your wife or your significant other might say, wow, I really like that. And it gets you out of your comfort zone. So check that out, bedratty.com. If you spend over $100, you'll get a free bonus polo. So that's, that's a good deal. Today, our guest on the podcast needs little introduction. Curtis Strange won back-to-back U.S. Opens and 14 other PGA Tour events during his Hall of Fame career. We talk about his career, Bryson's new style of play, what he loved most about working the U.S. Open broadcast with Fox, and much more. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. I wanted to ask you, you, you had a lot of huge moments in your career, obviously your two U.S. Open wins, um, but I'm curious where the closing eagle to win the NCAA title as a freshman ranks in your kind of me- golf memories. You know, it's, 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 it's a good question, and it's one that I always answer uh, when you talk about fortunate enough to have some highlights. Uh, I put that in there because um, highlights just aren't professional highlights. Highlights are at each stage in your career, uh, and that highlight propelled you or gave you confidence to to go forward. And certainly that was huge for me personally as a freshman for Wake Forest uh, as their first NCAA golf championship for my teammates, for my coach. You know, it was just it was just huge. And then the shot itself, hitting a one iron um, to eight or ten feet and, and making the putt. Um, I was just trying to two putt. <laughs> it went in. But you know, it's just yeah, it was. It's it's in my top, you know, three or four. To be honest with you, because it was a uh, one that you know what what pops up in your memory back. That that's one of them that does. Yeah, I, I imagine you can probably vividly remember all the details of that that one iron. And you know, for younger listeners, this isn't your driving one iron. This is a uh, a butter knife. This is this is one you could cook a fillet. You could cut a fillet with. Yes, go to your next time you go. Well, I don't know if you could even find a one iron anymore. I don't know if a youngster went to see what a one iron McGregor, Spalding, Wilson one iron used to look like. Gosh, where would you go to look for something like that other than your your granddaddy's garage? You know, <laughs> I don't know, but uh, you know, we uh, the blades were smaller. They were all forged. They were, 
you had to hit them, you know, the closer to the hosel, the more solid, but we did it. I mean, it was something you didn't, you didn't know any better. Um, and, uh, you know, quite frankly, the, the middle and short irons were, were when you hit it solid, there was with the softer old Balata ball, it was like butter. It was so solid and so had such a sound, soft sound and, and it flew so nicely. Um, but uh, things have changed in, in all aspects of, of that sound and feel and look than yesterday. Yeah, speaking of change, I, I'm, how being a young player in tour on tour in the late 70s and 80s, how, is it, how was that different than the young players today? Oh, you know what? I, I'm first going to say in, in the course of this conversation, I never, I never ever look at the youngsters today and say, gosh, it was better in my day. Or I never want to be the, the old jealous, you know, curmudgeon uh, that was better in my day. I, I think that uh, it's all pretty much the same. You're out there to, you know, as, as a youngster, you get on tour and first of all, you're happy to be there. Uh, it was a dream. And now let's go forward from here. Um, and you, you keep your nose to the grindstone. You work. You hit out balls and balls and balls every single day. Uh, you progress slowly. Sometimes you don't think you progress, but you do. And then you, then you might, you know, back in the day it was a top 60. But anyway, you just you competitively keep grinding and, and trying to compete against the best there is. And, and so from that standpoint, it's all the same. You're trying to be the best you can be. You all have similar backgrounds in that, you know, you came up in the game, um, you progressed, uh, you enjoyed winning, but you knew there was a lot of work and, and more likely than not, you, you loved it more than the next guy. You competed harder. You worked harder than the next guy and it showed. And so now, you know, if you work hard on tour that, I should improve. Some do, some don't. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variables here that to, to be successful on tour that you have to have, uh, you know, you have to be an athletic type of individual. Um, now we've had our exceptions, but uh, most of the, most cases, you're a pretty good, damn good athlete. Uh, you have to be stubborn, you know, uh, you have to have a work ethic. Uh, you know, all these things that uh, you have to love to compete and, and you have to be able to, you have to be able to accept the, the failure on the stage and be able to get up the next day and, and look forward to going to the golf course again and uh, all those things. So I, my answer to your simple question is I think it's all pretty much the same It's all competition at a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I've talked to Jeff Ogilvie a couple times, and he he obviously played in uh, era a little bit later than yours, but one with huge change with obviously TrackMan. And he talked one thing he talked about was the idea of everybody used to be searching for something, and you'd get to the range on a weekly basis, and somebody would say, "Oh, I think I figured it out." And and with tra- with the advent of TrackMan, it's it's not really a secret anymore. Everybody's got it figured out every day. Well, you know, our TrackMan gives you more knowledge, more detail of what's really happening. But you figured it out as a player. Uh, you knew what worked in, in a feel or what you thought was a movement on the backswing or downswing. You knew that feel 
when I felt that, say, on the start of my downswing, I hit the ball better. So you tried to emulate that and, and repeat that. Now, that you can do that in a daily, on, in, in a particular day. And then when you go to bed, it never seems to be there the next morning. Yeah. So you have to try to find that the next morning. And it might be a little bit different feel. It might be, but you get it. You get what I'm saying is that we had our own track, man, within our own feel. And you have to go back to the clubs and balls were different. So you, I think you could feel the impact a little bit better because a miss hit just off center, you could feel it uh, because the blades were such a smaller, had such a smaller sweet spot. They were so much smaller and the balls were, were softer. So you could feel where they were on the face. And so you had your own track mat and you kind of knew your own strengths and weaknesses. Hopefully you did uh, in your swing and you knew how to adjust. And it was all about adjusting. And those who, could do that more better than others were more successful did you through your career have like a certain feel that you were always trying to trying to get and when you were swinging and playing your best you you were getting that specific feel and if so what was it yes i I did uh again we were we were mostly all field players uh there were a few mechanical type players but uh again this was before it got so mechanical um and and teachers changed and became way too mechanical with young kids. And that's another story for another day. But uh, uh, yeah, I had feels, but they changed throughout a career because your body changes throughout a career and your swing changes. So that in itself is an adjustment, Uh, not every daily adjustment, but it just, you know, from, from time to time, um, uh, early on, I was a big swinger, very upright, stronger grip, uh, launched it for, for in the day. Um, so the feel was more movement from the body, from the ground up um, uh, to create the speed that I wanted. Uh, I was I was reasonably accurate uh, in those days doing that. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but I had a good swing. I mean, my swing was online, so... And I didn't know anything about that stuff when I was in college. I just launched it and it went straight. <laughs> um, uh, but and and but as you get on tour, I try to change my swing to be more consistent. I wanted to be able to compete every day, even those days you didn't feel very well or something was out of sorts. I still wanted to be able to get it around the golf course, so I throttled back just a little bit. I tried to tighten up a little bit. And so you, so your feels change. So my, my, my feel in, in those days when I went through this change starting back in the early eighties was, you know, my grip got a little weaker, you know, I kind of held on almost like a block. And, uh, I guess it was, was somewhat of a block, uh, through impact, but with the weak grip, it never went left. And my key looking back on it now was that I never ever worried about the ball going left. So I basically had eliminated one side of the golf course and, you know, when I missed it went to the right. And so I knew that and therefore I could drive it straight. I'd ironed it pretty well, but more than anything else, I eliminated one side of the golf course. Yes. One of my favorite uh, sayings, faders eat filet and hookers eat hamburger. (laughs) Well, you know, it's uh 
when you do hook, and I don't know, I don't know the last guy that hit sweeping hooks or hooks. First of all, the clubs don't allow it. The balls really don't allow it. The spinning sideways. But you know, when you when you in the day, if you hit a if you hit a big draw, you know the last guy I remember was uh uh Jesus, what was his name back in Arnold's? Anyway, they used to hit draws because they released it and they wanted to get maximum distance. But if you hit it, per- if you released it perfectly, it drew. Okay. But what's the, if you release it too much, it drew too much and the ball runs out. So you didn't want to do that. So the next swing, you hold on a little bit. It goes to the right. So now you got both sides of the golf courses going. And there was a guy that didn't eat filet. Okay. <laughs> he, when he's, when he's going both ways, he's searching for that feel. And when it's on, it's good. But now think about that little that little soft hang on cut that first of all it it doesn't cut as much because of the angle of attack as a hook uh it comes down softer and more than likely because you're hanging on you never miss left i mean you might miss left once in a while and a guy i think of in modern times is a jordan spieth he has it kind of blocked through the ball but he misses left once in a while and i don't know why that or used to anyway and I'm not picking on him, but just most of those guys have a little weaker grip that hold on, don't don't miss left, and so therefore, you know, it's just uh, it's kind of easy to control. You know, it listens a little better than that hook. They say. Yeah, yeah. I think I I grew up playing a draw, and and you're exactly right. And then the, one of the best things I did was I I got my game to where I just never think about hitting the ball left, and I hit a little fade. And my favorite thing is when you miss when you miss right. And with a fade, it just sits immediately. You know, you hit that high right poof ball. And then uh, yeah. if you hit the hard hook, as soon as it hits the ground, you got 15, it misses 15, 20 yards more left. Oh, my gosh. You know, first of all, say you're hitting a five right into a green and you hit a, a kind of a hard draw. It's going to run through the back left of the green every time, more than likely. If you hit it in the left center of the fairway, she's going to run right on out of that fairway every time. So, that cut doesn't. And, you know, when I was playing my best golf in the eighties, my, my, I kind of hit a little straight ball, a little tiny cut, but the shot I hated with a passion was that kind of little healy cut fade. But you know, the difference it hit, it made it, it, it stayed in the fairway every time. And I, and I won some tournaments with that horrible shot that I hated, but I could find it every time in the fairway. Yeah, yeah. Even even though it's not your favorite shot, you find it. It might be twenty yards short, but you're playing from the fairway, and I mean, you don't make a lot of bogeys from the fairway. Well, and 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 there's a good comment which you made. It might be a little shorter, yes, but it is in the fairway. And remember, in our day, we didn't have anybody that uh, because of the equipment, you couldn't, you you just didn't, you didn't hit it farther than anybody else. I never felt like I couldn't compete against anybody because they hit it a little bit farther than I did because nobody launched it 30 or 40 yards by you. The first guy that did that that ever came on the scene was John Daly. And those who, when I was coming up, those who were maybe big six, six launchers, of the golf ball, you know, they weren't considered great players because they hit it so far and the ball spun so much. They didn't hit many fairways. And so that's how the game has changed. A guy, a guy that that would remind me of from your era, like Dan Pohl, would that be a guy that that would uh, fit that description? 
you know, Dan Pohl was a better striker of the ball than his career ever showed because of what we were talking about. He kind of hit a little drop fade every time. He had a short swing, baseball swing. He was a baseball player, very, very fast hands, but kind of almost a little blocker, if I remember correctly now. Uh, and so he drove the ball pretty well. I, I don't know if Dan was a great putter or not. I don't remember. But uh, Dan did a lot of TV when he stopped playing. But Dan Pohl, here's a stat for you, won the driving distance. And I think it was 1988. Don't hold me to these facts. 1988, he won the driving distance on tour. And his distance was like 287 or 288. And that was it. Mm-hmm. How about that change for, for distance? Yeah. A little bit. I mean, if you're 288, you're you're uh, you're bottom of the tour now. Bottom of the tour, and what Bryson averages 350 last week, 70, 65 yards difference. That's all. Because mm-hmm. the shorter hitters in 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 the 80s were 240, 250 compared to 280. Yeah, well, I I was pretty much the middle of the field, very average, maybe maybe a smidgen below average. And I was like 255 or 256. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I made my living with, with four five and six irons. I mean, seriously, you know, a four forty four fifty par par four was a four or five iron, maybe a six iron all day long. Golf courses like Firestone, uh, uh, Augusta, was long in cases when it when it when it got cool in the spring um pebble beach well pebble beach wasn't long but there were some courses out there i mean just there were certain golf courses muirfield village in the spring when it was cool was a long golf course and it was four or five or six irons all day long every day uh talk i I, bryson you hit on obviously he unbelievable performance he, you know goes miss beyond the 350 drives was uh, yep. incredible putting you but... know what i uh, he's been the talk of of every golf for the last really kind of couple two or three weeks and especially after this week i you know there's there's first of all i think he's showing the world now i'm a titleist guy okay <laughs> i'm a Titleist ball guy. And I've always been very careful on, you know, saying, talking about the ball because they don't, they used to pay me. So you can't criticize the hand that feeds you. But the point of the fact is he's showing the the world of golf that it's just not all about the golf ball and the driver. Now it's a big part of it. Trust me, a huge part of it, the majority part of it, but the part of the equation that has never gotten enough, uh, attention in this ball that goes so far is the ability of these kids and the speed that they create. Okay. And the accuracy in which they hit it with the speed. I walked for Fox the last four years on the, in the U S open. I've seen it firsthand. I saw Dustin Johnson carry the three wood at Aaron, Aaron Hills, three forty. 330 or something up the hill on the last hole with a three wood one day. I mean, it's incredible stuff. But when you see what Bryson has done, he's gone from, you know, a nice hitter, uh, you know, a, a nice plenty of length to putting on muscle, gaining speed, but more so than anything else. Now, I'm not a physicist, but it's the mass that he's moving. It's the 40 pounds 
that he's put on that I never knew about. But when you add mass and speed, the ball will go farther. It's not about flexibility more. It's not all about strength. It's about the mass and moving that mass and having the strength to support it. Now, somebody might prove me wrong in what I just said, but it looks like that's what it is to me. And plus, he's trying to hit it bloody hard every time. But he's driving it. I saw this morning he's hitting 63% of the fairways or something. That's good on a, on a normal for a normal person. 70% was very accurate on tour. And so he's proven all these people wrong that said it was just about the golf ball and the driver. It's about the athleticism of these players and the speed in which they create. And I kind of marvel at him. I do. Okay, he's a little different. Well, we're all a little different, okay? We're all type A different egomaniacs and, and very – uh, we're egomaniacs on tour, and we're also the most insecure individuals on the planet with our golf swings. <laughs> so, uh, that, if that isn't a contradiction, but it's he's 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 kind of figured something out here. And don't think you might not have somebody else try the same thing in the next year or two or three, uh, because it seems to work. My question: I have two questions with this. I'm I'm rambling now, but I have two questions with Bryson. One, when you try to hit it so hard every time, how long will that last? Okay. Now, all it has to last is eight years, and then he'll be, you know, maybe a 25-time winner, 30-time winner, and five majors. Who knows what's going to be, what the future holds for him. But uh, the other thing is, uh, well, it's, 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 will his body hold up? Oh, I know. The short game. When you put on this mask and you change your body structure, do you change your feel? I don't know. I think your feel is, is born within you. It's, it's, it's bred within you. So it might change a smidgen, but some people will question that. Will it change his feel? I don't, I don't know the answer to that because my body never changed. But um, if it does, you'll have to contend with that. But, you know, he's a smart enough guy. He'll, he'll, he'll take care of every, every stone will go. Will, will be unturned with Bryson. Trust me. Yeah, I think you hit the accuracy is unbelievable, and I think you know one of the things that gets lost a little bit with the distance debate is that. Well, with accuracy, and with and with accuracy, I always thought now within control. But the harder you hit it, the straighter you should hit it with yes. a driver because everything is straightening out. Okay, if you're in control. I, you know, whenever you start to get manipulative and hit it 80% or 75%, that's when you, you, you your body doesn't react. You, you're putting it in positions. But when you swing 90%, 95%, everything straightens out an impact. And if you have a good swing, a good grip, uh, a, a swing that's on plane, it should go just as straight as it's ever going to go. And so, yeah, as long as he's in, in, in control of the swing, he should drive it as straight as he used to. The only difference is the farther the ball goes, you know, with physics, uh, the more it can go offline just with just the sheer numbers of it. But he's really driving it pretty straight for as hard as he's hitting it. Yeah. And to create that speed, you have to be pretty fundamentally sound. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You can't do it with just upper body. You can't do it with just arms and hands. Everything's moving. You know, it starts from the ground up. The weight shifts to the left, the lower body, the upper middle torso, there's you know, it's just, and, and he seems to be doing even that with himself. Remember, he's a golf machine guy. He's a very, very mechanical guy in his swing. And I personally didn't know a guy that 
I, I shouldn't speak for him because it could be wrong, but um, a golf machine theorist is very mechanical. So therefore you're, you're thinking about position so much. So I always wondered if you could swing as hard as you wanted to think about positions, but he seems to be freewheeling it and, and not encumbered with, with positions right now, which is what he used to be. Did you play much with Bobby Clampett, who's obviously a golf machine guy? Yeah, um, I did. Yeah, I played with him. You know, I was, I, I didn't play with him a lot, but, you know, I was already established on tour when this, this can't miss kid uh, was winning all these amateur tournaments and he was long. He wasn't big, but we knew he was long. And he played in a couple of tournaments as an amateur, uh, being from the West Coast. And, you know, he was, that was my introduction to the kind of the golf machine uh, theory uh, theory. I don't know if it's a theory or not. I don't know what it is, but, and so he comes out and everybody's kind of intrigued. What is this guy? You know, he's got this tremendous lag and impact. I also did some clinics and played with him a little bit when he started going bad. And what he did was, I, I think he overdid the golf machine, but I don't know for a fact, but yeah, I was, I was, I knew and saw Bobby come up and then fall off the face of the earth. It seemed like that open where he was leading by, you know, I can't remember how much, but through two rounds was, and then he kind of blew it coming down the straight. It, maybe it might've been Sandy Lyles when uh, I can't remember who won that year, but that really had a lasting impact on him. Well, you know what it, it, it really shouldn't have because every we all lose big tournaments throughout our career, especially when we're inexperienced. Uh, the pressure in a major championship is so amplified over a regular tour event, and a regular tour event is plenty. I mean, you couldn't spit if you had a gun to your head in a regular tour event when you're coming down the stretch and, and early on in your career, and then you throw yourself in a major. It's, so I, I might disagree with that, that it had a huge effect, uh, if anything, if nothing else, you should have learned from it. Okay, you know, what did I do wrong? How can I improve? What did I learn from the pressure uh, affecting my body, my swing speed, my thought process? All that stuff you, you, you take into account, many cases subconsciously. And so the next time you get in position, you, you, you learn from your mistakes before or prior. And uh, so I disagree that it had a huge impact. Yeah, later on, uh, you know, we all get disappointed, but you have to get back up the next day and go work. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think on every single level of golf that that helps, even like your, uh, you know, eight handicap out of the club on weekends and loses a, you know, a net club championship because it's, the next year he's in that position, he's going to do better. Uh, speaking of that, I, I, you know, the 85 Masters is obviously one that, in your career that kind of may might've gotten away a little bit, but it's also one of the craziest stories shooting 80 in the first round and then having a two shot lead on, on Sunday on the back nine at, at Augusta. Is that the tournament that you kind of think back to most and, and kind of long for a do over. And also how did that, uh, you know, speaking about what you just talked about, how did that tournament have a positive impact on your, on your career? Well, that's when we just talked about Bobby Clampett and, and the Open Championship when he lost. That's, you know, I can speak from experience. Yes. You know, you, you're disappointed. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you feel terrible for, for a while. And, and, and the, 
the, I, I knew the best thing I could do. And people told me that is get your ass up, get back in, on the golf course as soon as you can and get in contention that we all want to get in contention, but get in contention as soon as you can. And, and, you know, and, and, and learn from it, just kind of get up and go. And I did, I mean, that's, that's my, the way I am. Uh, but yeah, 85, I, we had just had our second baby and Sarah wasn't there. And, uh, so I was there with a couple of friends and, and so shot 80, the first round had, you know, was disappointed cause I was playing well. I'd already won once or twice that year. And, and, uh, but I'd made plane reservations to get home Friday late and, you know, be with, our second son who would just arrived. Uh, but I shot 65 the next day and, uh, jumped back in contention. The scores weren't real low that year. So I jumped right back, kind of not in to make the cut or anything, but kind of got back in contention. And then he shot 68th on Saturday. And I know all these details, but anyway, I'm still behind Raymond Floyd. Uh, but I'm in the last group. And next thing I know, I'm on the 10th tee with a four shot lead. And so, uh, but the pressure, I'd never felt anything like that. I, you know, I, I knew how to play golf. You'd play golf. You've been successful throughout, you know, the different stages of your career. And, and so I knew what to do. You breathe. Number one, people say, what do you mean? You breathe. Number one, you make sure you breathe in deeply and out deeply and just kind of take your time. And, you know, I didn't play terribly on the backside, but I lost and, uh, and give a lot of credit to Bernhard Langer who won, but, uh, it was hard. It was hard, and it is the one I think about that got away. Uh, I was very fortunate that uh, many didn't get away from me, and I don't say that I didn't. I didn't get all that many chances to win, but I, I felt like I took advantage when I when I had a chance to win. And uh, but that is the one that I think about, and it's it was um, as much as we all dearly love uh, the Masters and Augusta National. It would have been great to to go back there forever as, as and, and put on a green jacket but hey it doesn't it 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 all works out in the end and i can't dwell on it too much because we all we all lose a whole lot more than we win on tour and that's why you have to be somewhat tough mentally because the golf beats you up the competition beats you up you're playing against the best of the world every day and uh you have to prove yourself every single day you're only you know this is harsh but i I feel like I'm only as good as my last shot or my last round. And so I did beat myself up a lot, but, uh, the masters was one that, um, uh, was, was the one that I, I wish I had, um, maybe a do over or two. We talked just before about how much the games changed, um, from a distance standpoint, I, I read a old SI article about that, uh, round and, and you were hitting a, a forward on 13 from a hanging live from two ten. Um, and, and you think about, you know, fifth or 13 today, like what Bryson might do this year is obviously everybody's talking about, you might be hitting a lob wedge in. Well, I, and I had a good drive too. You know, I got up there and, and you talk about earlier, not worrying about the ball going left. You know, I had to hit it at this three in the day, those three pine trees out there in the, in the other side of the fairway. And I couldn't even drive it through the fairway. Okay. On my line, I couldn't drive it through the fairway. Now you're up in the pine straw a lot. But and I hit a really good drive. I hit it at that middle pine, and she she hits the fairway and jumps a little bit to the left. And I think I had, what, 208 or 218, something like that. It was a perfect four-wood off the hanging lie, and it would carry plenty over the creek. 
and I just hung it a little bit. And uh, people, people that have never been there don't understand the, the slope in that fairway. These guys make it look easy, and, but it really isn't. And uh, it's why you get out there and practice. But I hung it to the right. And so the one shot I wish – now I wish I had the second shot there back and the second shot at 15, of course. But the third shot out of the water at 13 is one that was such a simple shot. Just hit it like a semi-buried, semi-buried bunker shot. And I didn't hit it hard enough. And it didn't get out. And I ended up making bogey. But that's one I would like to have back because that was just a simple shot that we all have hit over the years. And not a lot, but you know how to hit it. So that's that's one of three or four or five or six that I'd want back on the back. But, uh, you know, you learn. I, I You know, would I have won two U.S. Opens if I'd have won there? Who the hell knows? But uh, 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 I go back there, you know, still work for ESPN there every year. And uh, I, I don't think about it often. But when you go back to Augusta every year, it seems to come up. And it seems to come up. And uh, uh, in a good way, in a good way. But uh, it, would have been a, it would have been a wonderful story to shoot 80 and win. I don't give a, I don't give a rat's ass if I shoot 80 and win or not. I just want to win. Yeah. So, uh, but it was a... Uh, uh, it was one of those times, yeah. It's it would have been incredible. I uh, it's that hanging lie. It's funny. I was playing last week with a buddy who's who plays on tour, and um, I uh, I had a hanging lie. It's very similar to that one you might see at thirteen on a par five. Uh, and I I had to, I was trying to hit a three iron. It came out low. It didn't carry over this bunker that I had to carry over. And I turned to him. I go, how how do you hit that thing high? And he goes, you know, Andy, you got to play a lot more golf than you play to hit that high. Well, you, you know what? Yeah, and, you know, strength and be able to do it. And 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 trust me, it sometimes it just won't come out high. Yeah, it's going to come in hot. It's going to come in hot and low, and you got to you know you got to uh, account for that. Uh, but you know that's that's the beauty of Augusta. You, I don't think you get a level lie on the entire golf course. And that's the part of it that the camera angles and the camera, which flattens the, the 2d camera flattens everything. And it's just hard to describe, uh, the, the little nuances around Augusta national that make it tough. Do you think that those uneven lies, especially today with power, do you feel that uneven lies throwing kind of scored a par out the window because i don't think that really matters anymore it's it's completely different game than when all these pars were established um do you feel like level lies is probably the best way to test uh the best players in the game now uh it certainly throws up you know a kink in in your everyday just kind of flat florida course yeah um Excuse me. Um, it's just one of the things that, as a professional, you learn to adjust every shot and 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 deal with it. Uh, wind, not so much rain, but wind, hard conditions, uh, unlevel lies, a lot of rough. All these things are elements that make the game tough. That's why the U.S. Open and maybe sometimes the open championship are the toughest test because there is a lot of rot, a lot of, a lot of rough and accuracy is, is as a priority. And if you don't, if you make mistakes, your, your uh, mistakes are magnified. Um, I, you know, 
it's just it's it's a game played outdoors. And sometimes if it's like it looked like this past week with Bryson, I mean, it looked like it was a game played in a dome. It looked like there was no wind. The weather was perfect. It was hot. The ball goes. All the above makes it easy. But uh, hitting the 350 off the team makes it so much easier. And so now you go compare Bryson, if he could average 330, 340, 350 to Augusta. Augusta being a second-shot golf course, okay? Very, very little rough. Wider, wider. Uh, corridors and any other golf course so it's a second shot golf course with the the undulating greens that they have and they're so hard and fast so now he's coming in with such a shorter club than the average guy it just makes the game easier at augusta national you know if he's coming in with a nine iron and i'm back there hitting a five iron guess who's going to win bryce every time and the putting is so different i tweeted out yesterday if i was bryson when i got to augusta this year I would, knowing what I know now at 65 years old, I would hit a few balls, not play 18 or play nine holes, whatever they do, but I would spend twice as much time, half my time, twice as much time as I normally do on the putting green to get used to the speed, to feel, to feel really comfortable Thursday morning, ready to play. I never felt really comfortable uh, at Augusta until maybe Friday afternoon or Saturday, because now you, you know, you got four or five days under your belt and you're getting used to the speed, but that's how fast they were in the day compared to other greens. Now there's a lot of greens fast, but they're still the fastest. Augusta are still the fastest with the most undulation. So therefore there's putts out there that are so much faster than you've seen all year long. And they're actually frightening at times. You wonder, sometimes you look at a putt and you say, how in the hell, when is this ball going to stop? And it does, but I would get out there for Bryson, spend a lot of time on that putting green, putting swooping putts, downhill putts, so he's comfortable because if he makes a few putts and he drives it well, it's going to be tough to beat. Yeah, I think you just hit on that. One of the things that makes it so tough is that fear factor. It's just like the golf swing you alluded to earlier, where when you go 80% instead of 95%, you, all of a sudden your body doesn't react. And I feel like getting defensive on the greens is one of the worst things that can happen uh, to your putting in a, in a tournament setting, especially. Boy, boy, great point there. You do, and that brought up another thought. I putted a lot of putts at Augusta so defensively just because of the speed, and therefore your you stroke even changes. You take it back slower, you go through slower, and now you're manipulating the putter, and, and, and you, don't, you don't putt by feel, and, uh, and therefore you don't putt as well. Uh, it was, some of them were, I'm telling you, some of them you looked at and say, wow. And you don't, you don't show that. To, to, you don't, nobody can sense that. But you just go, my, wow, where is this ball going to stop? Yeah. One of the great stories, one of the great stories, Seve, Seve four putts from about four feet at 16 one year, and he goes to the press room. Hey, Seve, how did your four putt 16? I miss, I miss, I miss, I make. <laughs> In other words, enough of these silly questions, you know. <laughs> Um, speaking of Seve, so you, you had some, uh, you had some Ryder cup matches with Seve and I, I read that there was a a little bit of gamesmanship from Seve. Talk about Seve in the Ryder cup. He kind of was a, um, 
a foil to Americans. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the gamesmanship and, and some of the things he would do to get under people's skin. Well, you're exactly right. And, and that was just heavy. Uh, you couldn't take it personally, but I did. He, you know what, what always pissed me off about Seve, and it's nothing personal. I, I like the guy. He was such a competitor, and he was he was the backbone of the entire Rada Cup, not research, surgeons up in Europe. Uh, he was their leader. Uh, but, you know, he he thrived on some of the gamesmanship that you, you might think that happens in match play, and it does. What pissed me off so much is that I knew that he had gotten to me. And I knew it was coming, and I still let it affect me. And so that's a, that's a problem with me. Uh, it's not a problem with him, but it's a problem with me. And that's the way he – but he thrived on it. And he knew when he'd gotten to you. And I got I to gotta applaud him for doing that. That's, you knew he was coming with it, and he got to you. And so uh, I, I say that with a big grin on my face because, uh, you know, gosh, we miss him and, and what a – what a charismatic guy he was and, and what a great player. Unfortunately, he lost his game. and I never could understand why he didn't drive it or hit it any straighter because he had a good swing. Great grip. Swing, it looked like it was on line the whole way, but in the later years, he, he, he didn't hit it very straight. But anyway, uh, he was such a force in the Ryder Cup. And, you know, I'm asked all the time, when did Europe become a force? Why did they become a force? And I'll tell you why they became a force. Seve. Nick Faldo, Ian Woosnam, Bernhard Langer, uh, uh, Sandy, Nick, Seve, Ian, and Bernhard. Five of the top 12, 10, 12, 15 in the world. It's a pretty good nucleus to have when you're a Ryder Cup team. Yeah, when you were playing your best golf, uh, most of the top end players you were kind of the the only american that was challenging those that european crop for a couple of years yeah i don't know why that was i mean we had we had you know greg and semi and and then that crop of european players and then you know tom watson was still playing you know really really well and winning tournaments and and hale Irwin and uh uh, a lot of younger players. I mean, I, I guess the U.S. Opens thrust me in front, but uh, I didn't ever feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always felt I was just one of of many. I never put myself, thought of myself as better than those guys. They were, you know, look at Tom Watson and his, you know, tremendous career. Uh, and and I, I just, I never, I never did that. I, I just, that wasn't the way I believe. I. Like I said, you're trying to prove yourself every day, and and uh, that's what I tried to do. With with Seve in, in Ryder Cups, was was that style that where he was never seemingly in the fairway, and was that part of the frustration of playing against him? No, I never sensed that at all. Uh, you know, I played with him numerous other times in in, uh, in major tournaments, and uh, you know, you did. I didn't pay any attention to anybody else playing with. Uh, nor did I play against anybody. I'm out there doing the best I can. Uh, you, you learn that early on is that you're playing against some people you feel like you should beat. You're playing against some of the guys that you admire and greatly, uh, uh, greatly admire uh, for their long career. But I didn't, I didn't care who I was playing with. Um, uh, certainly the better competition, the bigger name uh, inspired you to do well, but, 
I didn't ever look at anybody's swing. I was into myself. I was into my game and just doing what I thought I knew how to do. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the 18-hole playoff uh, at your at one of your U.S. Open wins with uh, Faldo and, and how that compared, to, like, pressure-wise, that Monday 18-hole playoff versus a, a Sunday final round. Uh, magnified. Um, and, and, and you're right. I mean, a Sunday final round head-to-head against a world-class player is it's it's not like a playoff because there's other players that could come from behind and win uh so in that respect it was a little different but you know you, you don't sleep the night before you're anxious you're you're on point uh you know every shot you hit the next day is going to be magnified but you don't dwell on that you know you try to do the best you can and you prepare the next morning um the longest time for any professional golfer is to, from the time he gets up to the time he tees off. And it's the most boring. It, it lasts forever. Say you get up at eight o'clock on, on Monday morning for the playoff in the U S open. And you don't tee off till two or two thirty. It's an eternity. But once I get to the golf course and got to the practice tee, it was game on. That's now you're, now you're in your comfort zone. So you try to do the whole thing. You're anxious. You're, you know, I never got comfortable all day long. Uh, I really didn't because you know that each shot, this next shot could, could win or lose uh, your dream tournament. So uh, you get to the first tee and I was nervous, Um, but you, now you do what you know how to do. You go play golf. And uh, I played, I really chipped and putted. Well, it was a windy. We got up that day. And it was breezier in Boston than ordinarily it would be in, in a hot summer day, June day. So I knew it was going to be harder. You know, it's a U.S. Open setup. The course is fast and firm. So there's going to be there's going to be some missed greens. And I missed some greens, but I really chipped and putted well. And uh, and you know we had a we had a great day. And you know how many words were said? Zero between the two of us. And that's exactly the way I wanted it and the way it should have been two guys going head to head in what I think is the greatest championship in the world. And Nick thinks it's the second greatest championship in the world and trying to, trying to win, trying to win. And, uh, it was, it was good competition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then, so you win the next year also. And, uh, and then, but Dinah, you had, you were in the hunt there for a three-peat, was it it I read somewhere that the it was really soft comparatively to you know your traditional US open setup. Yeah, we got to Oak Hill um that Monday and it was hard and fast and it was a tremendous amount of rough. It was the old style US open setup. Mm-hmm. Greens were hard and fast, a lot of sloping greens, not a lot of not a lot of like Augusta National bumps and mounds and bruises but just a lot of slope from back to front on a lot of the greens. So we're going, wow, this is really hard. This is really hard. Fair drives are running out of fairways into the rough. And then we got like three inches of rain on, uh, it was Tuesday night. I think earlier in the week, Tuesday night, we got an enormous amount of rain and the whole setup changed. And from a player standpoint, 
you felt like now you could play you could play more golf versus play so defensive and know you're going to get screwed a couple of times out there because of the firmness and the whole thing changed in my mind it changed that now I'm going to be able to drive it in all the fairways and keep these longer irons on these greens easier than than before and it's exactly what happened i didn't i didn't miss many fairways all week long uh, i really drove it well uh, <clears throat> the second round won me the golf term i shot 64 um, and, uh, that's the, and so now I'm just hanging on, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, it turned out well, but it did change overnight. Yeah. It, in your mind, I guess, it, you know, there, in that era, there are a lot of us open players where, you know, like a Scott Simpson seemingly was always in the hunt. You were a, obviously yeah, yeah. A, a great us open player felt, was there a certain style that really thrived in, in us opens? And do you feel like it, it, in covering the us open the last few years that it's, it's changed a little bit? Yeah. The style was, you better put it in the fairway off the tee because remember we, nobody dominated in length and the rough was such back in the day uh, that if you drove it, in the rough, it was tough to get it anywhere near the green because we weren't strong. The ball didn't go. Um, you couldn't overpower rough like that. So you mostly, most of the time, couldn't get it to the green. So then you had to get it up and down. Uh, now, with the U.S. Open setups, it's so much different that, that I don't agree with, but a little bit wider fairways and a, and a first cut that's six, eight, ten steps wider that you can play out of. And plus, these players are bigger and stronger than we were. So the whole the whole thing is easier. But that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, – so you had to put it in the fairway, and then there was always a lot of rough around the greens, and you had to put it on the green. It was tough to get it up and down from three or four inches of rough, you know, and you into a hard, fast green. So the whole thing was so different. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, we have a lot of runoff areas now around U.S. Open golf courses, which if the golf course doesn't set up to that, why do that? And why, to me, have a runoff area uh, when the rest of the golf course has rough around it? It's kind of manipulating the golf course where the architect, I didn't think, had that in mind. But that's, again, another story. But anyway, uh, so priority was to put it in the fairway and put it on the green. And uh, that's what you that's what you try to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I mean I think the runoff areas are uh, they have to obviously fit. Um, it's it's an interesting debate whether obviously there's if your short game around the green and rough requires a certain type of skill, and then short grass around the green uh, requires a different type. You know, different sc- shots. It get, opens up way more shots and recovery options for players. But you could say that if the more skilled player might separate themselves even more from short, short grass. You know, I, I will debate that with you. There's a lot of people that, that don't know how to hit it out of the rough, but it is a skill. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there luck involved with well, his luck involved in everything, but you're trying to penalize a, 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 a poor second shot. And what I don't like is that first of all, if it's, if it's just a, if it's not a poor shot, if it's just shot that's not exactly accurate, I don't like balls running away from the green 20 or And that's not, you know, if the whole golf course is set up like that, like a Pinehurst, 
that's perfectly okay. But when you go around a golf course and all of a sudden the 14th hole is a perched up green and now you have runoff everywhere, whereas the other 13, 14 holes you have rough, then now you manipulate. You're, ch- you're changing the whole concept of the setup. And it's just my, my theory of, of setting up a, a golf course. And it, but it's become in vogue. Uh, it's, been in, it's been around for a long time now. Uh, the Players' Championship has a lot of runoff area. Uh, but that's the way the golf course was originally set up. And they've gone back and forth a little bit on rough or runoff, but uh, there's still a lot of runoff. Uh, when we go to Pebble Beach, and this past year, they didn't have one or two runoffs, and that's okay. The prior U.S. Open, they had a lot of runoff, and, and that's not the way Pebble – anyway, uh, let's just be consistent is what I'm trying to say. And whatever's in vogue, I know it changes. But, uh, you know, U.S. Open – to me, it's supposed to be the hardest championship in our country because it's our national championship. It should test every bit of your skill and ability, and you should be exhausted on Monday morning after playing uh, the U.S. Open, and that's the way I believe it should be. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with the consistency thing because it, it looks it looks stupid, too, when you have one runoff on 18 holes or two runoffs and, and you don't have them everywhere else. Um, but- yeah, and I, and I was remiss by not mentioning Aaron Hills was all runoff as well. That was good. That was fun. You know, Aaron Hills was not a bad golf course. It was just, we had perfect weather all week long and that's why we shot those scores. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's not a historical traditional golf course, but it was, a, it was a nice challenge for the guys. Hey, I wanted to talk about 84. Uh, you finished third at Winkfoot. Um, and you know, just behind, uh, Norman and Zeller. Um, I, Curious, are you know? Obviously, it's a bummer that you're not going to be on the ground covering it for Fox um, this year. But what? Uh, tell us a little bit about Wingfoot as a U.S. Open venue. Wingfoot's a hard golf course. Uh, in the day, and it still is long, straightforward, traditional. Uh, no, no secrets. Uh, hard golf course uh, a lot of slope from back to front on a lot of greens uh, deep bunker deep deep bunkers hard to get it up and down um, just you have to be it's, you have to be accurate you have to be accurate um, greens aren't that big uh, I just it's just it's just one of the great golf courses you'll ever play and I must say the greatest grill room, bar room in America. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, it's just uh, when I play, when I finished third there in 84, that's some of the best golf I ever played in my life because it was so long. And if you drove in the rough, you didn't have a chance to get it uh, near the grain. And I really, really played well. I went to the last nine holes thinking I could get part of a playoff if I shot a couple under and I just didn't putt very well. But anyway, um, you know, I just, I wonder, it's a hard golf course. When I see five, six, seven over par one in a U.S. Open, I think, why, why is it so, so hard? What have they done to it? And of course, you can always make put hole locations where it's impossible to putt and make any putts. But I, I always think par is a good score. That means if par is shot in the U.S. Open, that means it's plenty hard. Um, uh, it would, it would, it's going to be and will be a great test this year, a great, great test. They've actually put a new P in on the 10th hole, which is a great, was 100, 
90 yards before a great, great par three. Now it's like 230. So that'll be interesting to watch. But I am uh, I'm hugely disappointed in um, not being able to go back to U.S. Open first time in many, many years. I was I was out of TV for three years from uh, 50 to 53, and then ESPN called me and said, would you host the U.S. Open with Mike Tirico? Not call golf, but host. And I said, are you kidding me? Yes. To get back involved in golf TV. And uh, that led to, you know, 65 years old doing the U.S. Open and um, thought we were going to do it for seven more years. And, you know, the transition from Fox to NBC, um, disappointed. We're all disappointed, but me especially because I will miss going to the U.S. Open. Uh, it's a part of my life. It's a huge part of my family's life. And uh, be able to call golf in a U.S. Open and be around the players and be around the officials and, you know, just be in that atmosphere. There's nothing like it. And, uh, you know, some of my greatest moments were playing, yes, but uh, I must say uh, being able to watch being the last round with Bruce Kepka two years ago to win back-to-back was, was a great thrill for me uh, to be there and see the next guy do it back-to-back and to watch some of the incredible shots that Gary Woodland hit last year, incredible shots. The, the three wood on the 14th hole, uh, the, the pitch off the green at 17. I mean, just incredible shots was really a thrill for me. The start of that round was just incredible. How the, how Woodland and, and Kepka were just going blow for blow those first six holes, birdie after birdie. Yeah. You know, and, and don't think that, uh, for all the listeners and, and out there that, don't think that I don't get fired up when I see that. I'm in the last group waiting in the first fairway to, for Gary Woodland to tee off, and I'm hearing on my headset that Kepka's just birdied, what, two of the first three or three of the first four? And so now he's tied or something. And now he's really challenging Gary Woodland, who's never done this before. And Gary Woodland, they're both great guys. They're both, you know, they're both, uh, you know, strong, fit competitive individuals and and don't think that I don't get fired up and I'm on point and I'm want to do the best I can possibly do and anything that comes out of my mouth I want it to be concise and right on and exactly what the player is thinking that's all my position out there that day was to bring the viewer closer to what this guy is thinking and feeling and what's presented in front of him and so I'm on point. And then the whole day was like that. And it was, it was a thrill. I, I can't understate this. It was, or overstate this. It was such a thrill for me to be out there, <clears throat> be a part of something like that. And I'm going to miss it. If you were talking to say a player um, and giving advice, what, what's some stuff that you picked up? Obviously you were a great major championship player. What were, what was some stuff that you picked up that you, hadn't thought of while you were a player when you were, when you were doing, uh, you know, you were announcing and part of the telecast watching golf that would you think would have helped you as a player? You know what? It's, 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 I thought about that a lot and there's one thing, but before I tell you, I want to say that I've heard a lot of announcers say that, you know, they, they learned, uh, from announcing more about playing and improve their game from announcing and that kind of stuff. That's a crock of shit. What, what you, the only way you, the only way you improve 
your games to go out there and practice and hit golf balls and play competitive golf. That's the only way you get better. But the one thing I did learn, the one thing I did learn that I didn't know when I was playing is that you don't have to be perfect to win. And I always felt like I had to be perfect to win. And therefore, I think I beat myself up a little bit too much. Maybe on the weekend or on Sunday when I didn't hit the perfect shot, I might have gotten down a little bit too much. And, 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 and I never got really a defeatist attitude, but, you know, it's, it, things change. And when I have been in the booth for 23 years now and around the game and TV, that uh, there's a lot of guys that miss hit shots and miss putts, but they take advantage of the opportunity when it presents itself, and they're not perfect. And I always felt like I had to be perfect to win. And uh, I, would, I, would have, I would take a different, little different attitude to the backside on Sunday or maybe Sunday's round uh, if I had to do it all over again. I'll tell you one other thing I, would, I, I learned over the years uh, in, a, in a little bit different vein than your question was that I hit a lot of golf balls. And I enjoyed practicing, but I felt like I had to beat balls to keep up with the Joneses, okay? If I had to do it all over again, I would hit half as many balls because you never, nobody's ever won a tournament in the history of golf by striking the golf ball. You have to make putts and you have to chip well. So I would hit half as many balls because you're never going to get so good. That's, that's a born trait is to be able to hit the golf ball. You can improve a little bit from here to there. But where you can really improve is chipping and putting. Become the best chipper and putter you possibly can, and therefore that will take advantage of your ball striking. Mm-hmm. You, win, you win tournaments by your short game. You don't win them by driving in the fairway and striking the golf ball. Yeah, I feel like what gets lost with statistics and everybody always you know, talks about how important driving and approach play is, but you know, th- those things get you into contention and it's, it's very rare. And you look at players over the histories of their careers, it's very rare, you know, almost all the people that you would tab in underachiever in terms of their win totals are great ball strikers who struggle around and on the greens, you know, and, and those, that's where you win tournaments is, is like you said. Bryson DeChambeau, was number one in strokes gain last week driving, okay? That didn't win in the golf tournament. He was number one in putting. That won in the golf tournament. Certainly the driving helps, but the end game is getting into the hole. And whenever I ever won a golf tournament, and I didn't win many, because I so I remember a lot of them. I mean, I think you're selling yourself played, a little short there. Well, but when I when I when I won a tournament Yes, I played well, but I putted really, really well. Every single time, I really putted well. And something else, I always made a key putt coming down the stretch. You always have to hit, hit a shot or make a putt coming down the stretch to win. Nobody ever lets it be easy for you. So you have to perform. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, you know, you got to make putts. It, it's, it's very simple. What's the, what's that most, you know, you talked about hitting a shot down the stretch, which shot in your mind is the most memorable one of all the shots? The, which qualifies what we were just talking about. The most important shot that I ever hit in my life was the bunker shot on the 72nd hole in the U S open in 1988. 
mm-hmm. to get in the playoff with Nick Faldo. If I don't hit that bunker shot and get it up and down, then I never have a chance to win. So that's the most important shot. The best shot uh, might have been the one iron in the NCAA uh, in 74. It might have been the four iron on the last hole over water to to get in the playoff with uh, Greg Norman in the Houston Open. It might have been uh, – uh, 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 I mean, there's, there's three or four that you think about. Uh, and I qualify. Not only were they good shots, they were late Sunday afternoon, and they meant something when the pressure was on. Um, so uh, uh, I think about those type of shots. Um, um, it's, uh, and, it, it, and it makes you feel good when you do it, especially because this is what you strive to do to do it on the stage. And this doesn't start in professional golf. This starts back there when you're nine and 10 years old, you dream about the U S open, you dream about the masters. And so you dream about being on the last hole against Hogan, Sneed, you know, Palmer, Nicholas, whoever your heroes might be. And you compete against them in your own imagination. You're hitting three or four balls out there. And so when you finally get there, I've always felt like, you know, you, you better have the guts to fail because you're going to fail a whole lot more than you, than you're, than you succeed. But you got to, when you fail, you got to get back up, up. You can't go back in your hole and, and bury your head for the next three weeks. You know, um, you got to be able to get back up there and do it again. And some can do it and some can't. And, um, I enjoyed the competition. I love being, in the last group or that late Sunday afternoon. Cause that's when you find out did all of this work pay off? Have I succeeded in this game? Can I do this on this grandest stage? And if I can hit those shots, you know, on the last horse Houston to the U S open or wherever it might be, um, then you know what? I, 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 I've done my work. This is all I can do. Yeah, it's. I mean, golf. You you hit on so many things there, but I think one of the I played. Uh, I qualified for a a mid am a U.S. mid am a few years ago, and one of my buddies who I play tournament golf with, we were talking after, and he said, "You know, you really gotta you gotta savor this moment because this is the one percent. You know, ninety nine percent of the time, golf just kicks you in the nuts and says says, you know, go." go try harder, play better next time. But that 1% when you, when you pull off the shot or when you, when you get it done down the stretch is like the best feeling in the world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To hit that, to hit that five or six iron or whatever club it is, right flush, you, you finish in balance. The ball's going where you're looking. It means a lot. You know, it's just, there's nothing like it. And you don't have to hit many of them to keep it coming back. But let's not forget, this isn't about professional golf. This is about you qualifying for the mid-am or or my son qualified for the mid-am some three years ago. And it could be the USM. It could be a college tournament. It could be, you could be, you know, an, an older guy playing amateur golf, senior amateur golf, senior, you know, maybe a senior amateur in the senior open. It could it's be not a club about championship. Golf. At club championship, absolutely. And so it's, it's all these stages of golf that, uh, that keeps bringing you back when you hit the good shot or you perform when it matters the most. So I got, I got a couple uh, quick questions on the, on the way out. Thank you so much for the time. Um, 
But what's the what's the scary what's the scariest green at Wing Foot? Uh, let me think here for a minute. Nine is is got a lot of undulation to it, uh, meaning not so much back to front, but a lot of movement. One has a lot of slope from back to front. Three has a tremendous amount of slope from back to front. You know, keeping it below the hole is going to be key there. Put it in the fairway and keep it below the hole. Um, it's pretty simple, wing foot. And again, at wing foot, being an old traditional golf course, everything's right in front of you. There's there's no hidden gems out there. It's it's right in front of you. It's just it's just a tough test. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how the, if the power's nullified a little bit by the rough and the greens there because. Those greens, if you're in the rough, can be so tough to get to really control the golf ball. Oh, that's and that's the key of the rough. Um, uh, is that yeah, you can get it as strong as these players are now. They can get it to the green, but you can't control where it's going to stop so much. And so, therefore, with being a really tough course to get it up and in, now you'll be left with some very very difficult up and ends, and that's that's the equalizer at Wingfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I. I, I stumbled across a story about an old bullseye putter that you had that you that you kind of trashed after a buddy of yours, uh, you know. T- ah, ah, this is college golf at its finest. So I got this old bullseye. My my favorite putter still of all time is the bullseye flange putter. Okay, you talk about butter feeling, soft feeling, uh, and so we play a college tournament. I didn't putt well. I was ranting and raving on the six-hour drive home or whatever, and Jay Haas, who was always on my ass, you know, nonstop, and uh, he's telling me, you know, that putter is not very good for you. You don't – your style, your way you just not very good for you. You should change putters, blah, blah, blah. And finally, I had enough, and I opened the window of the car running 80 miles an hour down the interstate and dragged this son of a bitch on the asphalt for about three miles and destroyed this – this this – this wonderful putter, <laughs> but I just destroyed it and then let it go and threw it away. And then all of a sudden I look back at Jay and he's laughing his ass off thinking I was just kidding you. So <laughs> that was, that was one of the stories of, of some of the stuff that happens in college golf, which is some of the greatest three years of my life. I, I wonder how many, uh, how many majors you would have gotten with, uh, if that, with that old putter. You know, I got a couple I still have in my house that uh, were exact copies of that. Of course, they all they all were a little bit different because they're all so hand ground back in the day. But those putters, I putted with them my whole life until I finally went to the Zing Two uh, back in about eh, middle to late eighties, middle eighties. Uh, but uh, you know, when you when you look at these modern day putters, they're big and they're space balance and they're solid, but they have big sweet spots. You talk about the old cash-ins, the old bullseyes, the old this or that. Uh, you talk about small sweet spots, but when you putted well, there was no feeling like it. Yeah, I I think that's, everybody talks about uh, the driver and how forgiving it is and the ball. And I think one of the other big things is the putter. Just hitting, you know, even in 1995 putter versus today, it's so much harder to putt well with it because if you miss it just a little, you're going to end up 10 feet short. 
Oh, absolutely. But I think the putters and the clubs being bigger, bigger sweet spots have even professionals. We've gotten, we've gotten a little careless uh, in our, in our striking, in our putting. If you went back to the old equipment, you would adjust quickly, but you would adjust by being more exact because you know, you have to be exact. I went back to blade irons, three or four years ago, Titleist Blade Irons, for that simple reason. I said, I came out of the room playing blades. I'm going back in the grave playing blades. And because you have to be more exact. And, and I think it makes you play better. And, 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 and just, I don't know. I like the look and the feel. And maybe I'm a little stubborn. Yeah, I, I have an old persimmon driver that sometimes when I'm struggling with the driver, I'll bring that out. And I have to focus so much on just hitting it solid that it just gets everything kind of back into place exactly and that's all i mean everything back into place you concentrate on what you're doing and 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 you hit it really well you really do Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so curtis thanks so much for for the time we'll have to have you on again maybe around uh maybe around a major and uh really gonna miss you not being on on tv with fox this year and uh and uh thanks again well, I appreciate it. Thanks for those comments, and always enjoy talking about the game of golf. It's 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 been a great it's been a great uh, life for me and a career, and uh, uh, I still think about it every day, even though I don't play much. I still think about it every day. So, thanks for having me on. <laughs>